1 Corinthians 1, starting at verse 18. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the intelligence of the intelligent I will frustrate. Where is the wise person? Where is the teacher of the law? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Jews demand signs and Greeks look for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. But to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom and the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. Brothers and sisters, Think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of this world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. It is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus, who has become for us wisdom from God, that is, our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. And so it was with me, brothers and sisters, when I came to you, I did not come with eloquence or human wisdom as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God. For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I came to you in weakness, with great fear and trembling. My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power so that your faith might not rest on human wisdom, but on God's power. Now, I'm sure you're aware that um, Charing Cross is considered to be the centre of London. I'm sure you all know that. And in fact, all distances from London are measured from Charing Cross. Well, apparently, I'm sure this is apocryphal, Apparently, uh, one day, there was a boy who was lost in London. And uh, fortunately, a policeman was there on hand and found the boy and, of course, um, started plying him with questions to find out who he was and where he lived. Well, the boy couldn't answer these questions. He was in a state. He was getting more and more confused, more and more frustrated at the policeman who was asking him these questions. And he eventually said to the policeman this, if you can get me to the cross, I think I can find my way from there. If you can get me to the cross, I think I can find my way from there. Now, obviously, he's talking about Charing Cross. 
But here in this uh, section in, in 1 Corinthians, we see, I think, Paul reminding the church what it is to get back to the cross and the message of the cross. To teach them what it is to be a cross-centered church. Not a church focused on personalities or philosophies, but on Christ and him crucified. So far on the letter, if you've been with us in this series, we've seen, haven't we, that the church was founded on Christ, um, a church that Paul had great hope for because he's seen God working in them. But also we see a messy, divided church uh, here fixated on their individual leaders, obsessed by personalities. And Paul wants to bring them back to the center of their faith. Maybe the reason they didn't do that naturally is that for them, the cross, as they considered it, was a humbling place. It's a weak place, isn't it? It's a messy and embarrassing place for them. But at the heart of the Christian faith is the cross of Christ. And without the cross, there would be no Christianity. Without the cross, who would we be here this evening? Just a group of people who enjoy each other's company. We'd be nothing more than that, would we? So as we look at this section together, the first thing uh, I want us to look at as we think about how Paul brings them back to make them consider being a cross-centered church, the first thing to consider in verses 18 to 25 is this, the weakness of the message. And that is God's plan. The message they preach is weak, but that is God's plan. Plan. Look at verse 18. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. The Corinthians, it would seem, had forgotten that the message of the cross is always going to seem foolish in the eyes of the world around them. And that's to be expected. And Paul says it's not for us to change the gospel or to take on what the world views as wise to make the gospel more acceptable. It would seem that's what the church here in Corinth wanted to do, to make a more attractive gospel to those around them, something that would appeal to people. We get a hint Back in verse 17, when Paul says he preached not with wisdom or eloquence. He wasn't doing that. That's perhaps what the world demanded. But it didn't and still doesn't. The world want a message which is weak and foolish. The world doesn't want a message of a crucified God, does it? Paul highlights here um, two groups of people in verses 22 to 24. Two groups who find the message foolish, who find the message uh, weak. 
First of all, the Jews, in verse 22, he says the Jews, they wanted signs. They wanted something powerful, dramatic, and impressive. And their claims to, to trust God, if only they, God would show them a sign, just doesn't add up. And it didn't add up when Jesus was here. It was just an excuse. Jesus performed many miracles before the Jews. And yet, most of those who witnessed those miracles did not believe in Jesus. One example, I'm sure you remember, don't you? On one occasion, Jesus healed a blind man in Jerusalem. He'd been a beggar from from birth. And after he was healed, even some of his neighbors refused to believe that he was even the same person, even though he told him, told them he was himself. And he was taken to the Pharisees to give his story, and they refused to believe that sign because that idea of a crucified Messiah for the Jews, as Paul says here, is just a stumbling block. It's foolishness. It's scandalous to think that that could be powerful. The second group are the Greeks here, aren't they, who wanted something wise. The Greeks wanted something intelligent, something to satisfy and scintillate their minds, something they could debate, some new philosophy. They cherished the idea of a king who is wise, a wise ruler. So Paul's announcement that God's king had to be had been crucified, was just foolish to them. They couldn't accept that. Perhaps some indication of what most of the Greeks thought of the message of the cross can be seen in, um, in what is a piece of graffiti on, uh, uh, in Rome, on the Palatine Hill. And there, somebody has, has drawn, and you can see pictures of it, someone's drawn a, a, a foolish youth I think we're getting ahead of ourselves guys a foolish youth looking at um, a man crucified on a cross with an ass's head and underneath the writing says Alexa Menos if that's how you pronounce it Alexa Menos worships his God in other words the point is clear isn't it the God that Christians worship is foolish that's what the Greeks thought so to say that a jewish man from nowhere executed as a criminal is somehow god that is ridiculous this message seems weak and it's so similar in our culture today as well isn't it so many view the message of the cross as weak Maybe some who strive in their lives for power or for position might look at Christianity and think, well, where, where's the power in that? What's the good of that for me? They might say, well, you know, intellectually we've moved on from ideas like this. It was okay centuries ago, but not now. We believe in, in thinking rationally. We we trust in education, in science, technology. Christianity is just <clears throat> old, outdated, and not keeping up with modern thinking. The fact that people will look at Christianity, Paul says, and think it is weak and powerless and foolish 
should not be a surprise because the message appears weak. It shouldn't shock us or surprise us. That's how people view the message of the cross. In fact, God planned that the gospel, Paul says, should look weak, should look ridiculous because God does things his way, not man's way, not our way. Look in verse 19, a quote from Isaiah which says, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the intelligence of the intelligent, I will frustrate. And the context there for that warning to Israel is not to think they know better than God himself. Isn't that just a description of our culture, our society? To think they know better than God himself. <coughs> but God has set up the cross as the opposite to what the world would think. Opposite to what the world thinks should be done. And he does that to humble us. To make us feel humble. The cross is a humbling message. Because the cross is telling us we can't do anything ourselves. We can't do a thing. So that the wise person of this age, the philosopher, the best thinkers in our generation, when they come and dismiss the cross, they don't understand it. They're made to look like children themselves. The very thing that the world says is a waste of time is actually the true power of God and the true wisdom of God. The cross does not big us up. It takes us to a place of humility and tells us and shows us that we can't fix the world's problem and we can't fix our problem. Our generation trusts in many things, doesn't it? It trusts in, of course, education. As Tony Blair famously said, education, education. Education. I think he probably just forgot what he was going to say next. But, uh, uh, and we trust in education to fix the world's issues. Things like racism. But it's not helping, is it? It trusts in science to solve the world's diseases like a world pandemic. Well, it can push death further down the road, but it just delays it, doesn't it? These things can't solve and fix the world's problems and our problems. But God has solved our problems in his way. And it took, even for God, it took not his word, but it took his own son to come into this world, to live and die and bleed for us, to fix our problem. I guess our generation, in some cases, us, we, we resist that idea, don't we? We don't like the fact that God has done it his way without any help from us. But if you're here and if you've 
accepted the message of Christ, if you're trusting him for salvation, then that's because of what? Well, nothing in you, but look at verse 24. It's because God has called you, verse 24, to those whom God has called. God has called those who will trust in him. He's opened our eyes to see that actually what is weak, the message of the cross, is actually the power of God and the wisdom of God. And that's something we need to remember as well, isn't it, as we explain the gospel to others, that they're not going to get it because it is a message of weakness. They're not going to get it unless God opens their eyes, unless he calls them to himself. Naturally, people won't get and accept the cross as wise and powerful but Paul says we can't adapt and change the message just because it's unacceptable. We can't change it because the gospel is the very thing that people need. And to change it will mean there is no hope. So Paul says it might be weak, this message of the cross, but it's God's plan and we need to present the cross Trusting in the power of the Spirit. Trusting God to open blind eyes to his wisdom and his power. So firstly, in those verses down to verse 25, Paul says the weakness of the message, which is God's plan. Then secondly, the weakness of the recipient, those who receive God's grace, which is to God's glory. I don't know whether you've ever read this book. Um, Dale Carnegie in 1936 wrote How to Win Friends and Influence People. You may not have read the book, but I'm sure you've heard of the title. Um, I haven't read it. That's probably evident from uh, the way I deal with people. But in one of the chapters, a chapter called How Can I Change People Without Giving Offense, which I'm feeling like I should read. It sounds good. He makes these points. First of all, begin with praise when you're dealing with people. Give an honest appreciation of them. Secondly, uh, let the other person save face. So whatever it is you're talking to them about, let them save face. And thirdly, give the other person a fine reputation to live up to. As we look in verses 26 down to the end there, I don't think Paul has read the chapter that Carnegie wrote about how to change people without giving offence. Look what he says. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. It's kind of not the way to win people, is it, Paul? But Paul is saying, isn't he, to the Corinthians, and you can, can you imagine them reading out this letter in the church, looking around the congregation as it's being read. Not many of you were high flyers. Not many of you were well respected in your community. Not many of you come from well-known families. And as we read this out in 2022 and look around the church, I'm sorry to say it's true for us as well, isn't it? Not many of us are high flyers or well-respected or come from well-known families. And why is that? Why is that the case, Paul? Verse 27 but God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world 
to shame the strong. Or to put it another way, God wants very ordinary people like you and me, very ordinary men and women for his people. He wanted ordinary citizens of Corinth and he wants ordinary citizens of Leamington, Warwick and the surrounding areas. He wants people who are really like you and me. Sorry to say it, nobodies. He wants us. That's God's design and God's purpose. He delights to choose nobodies to show the world that what it thinks is important is not important at all. And actually what the world thinks is important means nothing to him. God calls nobodies so that nobody will boast. Nobody will be able to say before God, well, I was chosen because I have loads to offer. Look, at, look how wonderful I am. It's not like that, is it? If we are people of the cross, as Paul says, then we come into God's kingdom bringing nothing. Of course, that's not to say that we don't have gifts and and things that God has given us in different ways, equipped us to do different things. But in terms of our standing before God, we bring nothing. We have nothing to boast. We are not worthy. So, We shouldn't be surprised, Paul says, if the wealthy, the educated, the successful, the well-known don't respond to the gospel. God doesn't choose many of them. He chooses some, but not many. Um, Selina, Countess of Huntington, was was very well-to-do. She came from a very well-to-do family very well known, and she was converted at the time of Wesleyan Whitfield. And she said of this, verse uh, 26, that she was very thankful of the M before any. Because it doesn't say not any of you were wise, not any were influential, not any were of noble birth, but it says not many. And she was thankful of that because it included her as well. But for us, we, don't we, want to be constantly amazed that God should choose nobodies like us. Isn't that amazing? I'm a nobody. You're a nobody. And God has chosen us. Chosen us to do that work of grace in our lives. Amazed that God should do that work in us. I guess, you know, for some of us, we, on a Sunday evening, we might be anywhere, mightn't we? But God has chosen us. He's called us. God's done that work in our lives. He's rescued us. And here we are with God's people, worshipping him this evening. And he does all of that so that we might be humbled. It's not me, it's him. And that he might be glorified and honoured. It's not me, it's him. Um, Sir Edmund Hillary and uh, Tenzing Norgate were the first, I'm sure you know, first two men to climb Mount Everest, the Himalayas. There they are, smiling. 
together. Uh, on one of Hillary's returns to the Himalayas, he was spotted by a group of climbers. And uh, these climbers were obviously excited to be in the presence of climbing greatness. And they asked for a photo. They gave him a nice pic to hold, so he looked the part. They were posing for the photo. When another group of climbers walked past, and one man in that group didn't recognize Hillary. So he walked up to him and said, excuse me, sir, that, that's not how you hold a nice pic? And he proceeded to show him how to hold a nice pick. And Hillary just stood there and was quite you know, meek and allowed him to show him. And the rest of the people in the, in the group were a bit stunned and shocked and quiet. And then the photo was taken and they all moved on. Well, that climber was full of pride, wasn't he? Full of arrogance. That he failed to recognize he was in the presence of climbing greatness. And sometimes that happens to us, isn't it? Our pride takes hold and the problem of wanting attention and praise for who we are is that we forget who we are. Because the bottom line is we're sinners who need a saviour. And the only great one here is Jesus, isn't he? Not any of us. Because we're nobodies. But we do have him. And the reality is we have a wonderful saviour in Christ Jesus. Look at verse 30. He has become for us wisdom from God. That is our righteousness, holiness and redemption. Everything we have is in Christ Jesus. Without him we have nothing. In him we have everything. A righteousness, a purity, redemption from sins. In him, we have everything. In Christ, he is our all. As we think about being Christ, cross-centered Christians, we are humbled before him because we bring nothing to him. Because God says, I've done it all for you. Whatever we feel proud about, God says, actually, that means nothing to me. Maybe um, you're somebody who's pleased with your grades. Not sure I was ever pleased with my grades. Maybe you are. Maybe you're a person who takes pride in your job title or how well your career is going or how well you're viewed at work. Or maybe you take pride in your family or the way you're raising your children or... The fact that you're a generous friend or that you're good at looking out for people. But in that sense, well, those might be good things. The cross pulls all those things from under us, doesn't it? Like the rug is pulled from under us. Because in terms of our standing before God, he's not impressed with any of that. As the Bible says, even our best is filthy before him. But the cross tells us that we are wonderfully loved. We have a beautiful righteousness, an exquisite holiness, a complete redemption. That means that as the Father looks upon us, we're in good standing before him because of Christ. The weakness of the recipient is nothing to do with us. It's all to do with God's glory. That leaves us 
humble. It's nothing to do with us. But it also leaves us secure because we're certain of our standing in Christ. And then thirdly, and finally, the, um, Paul is, is telling the church here not only the weakness of the message, the weakness of the recipient, but also the weakness of the messenger, verse, verses 1 to 5 at the beginning of chapter 2. I'm sure you've heard this, uh, this phrase, haven't you? The medium is the message. Heard that phrase? I think what it's saying is that the way you say and convey something and put something across says something about the message itself. The medium is the message. And Paul is kind of saying something like that at the beginning of chapter 2. He says, When I came to you, I did not come with eloquence or human wisdom as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God. Paul says, look, since the message is opposite to human wisdom in the world, since it's a message of weakness, it doesn't make any sense for me to speak to you in strength and wisdom and trying to impress you. He says, I didn't want to be eloquent before you. What was his purpose? Verse 2, I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. The weakness of the messenger because it displays God's power. Paul was saying that the central message of his preaching was Christ and him crucified. He wasn't going to bring his own ideas. He was going to speak Christ and him crucified. Paul didn't come with eloquence, but he came, verse 3, in weakness with great fear and trembling. He came in weakness, great fear and trembling. Can you imagine if Paul was the guest speaker and he, he came into the, um, into the foyer and uh, he was greeted and the person greeting him sees this man who's weak and fearful, perhaps trembling a bit, and he says, well, I'm here, I'm, I'm Paul, the guest speaker. And you think, really? No, you can't be. We wouldn't be impressed, but Paul says that's the point. Paul's saying here the gospel is, is not to say to people, come and see how impressive I am and hear my eloquence, my reasoned arguments. It's not saying come and see how I've got it all together, now I'm a Christian. It's not come and look at me and see how wonderful my life is and see how much I've changed and how much you want to be like me. That, Paul says, is not the gospel. But the gospel is to say, look, I'm as broken and bruised and as weak as you are. And I'm struggling with the same sins and have the same struggles in my family, my work, and I'm I'm living in the same broken world as you are and I'm no better than you but I am better off because of Christ and because his work in me. I think so often we feel, don't we, that we need to impress to attract people to the gospel. The message though is not come and look at me. Of course it's come and look at Christ and that's what Paul was saying. 
We don't have to present our best side to people because that's not the gospel. Our witnesses not come and see how great and consistent I am, but see how much grace I've been shown in my life. And verses 4 and 5, Paul gives us the reason why he takes that approach. My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power so that your faith might not rest on human wisdom, but on God's power. The weakness of the messenger displays God's power. He wants their faith to be rooted in the power of God, not in people, personalities, or clever arguments. It's the spirit at work. That's what Paul is longing for. And that's what Paul wants to be evident in that church. And of course, that's what we want to be evident in in our church, isn't it? To see the Spirit's power in our church, in the preaching, in, in the small groups times we have together, in our prayer meetings, in our outreach events. God's power evident in us. Let me just close with them. Um, this illustration of, um, of John Stott, who was... Um, doing a uni mission in Sydney, Australia. And he'd almost got to the end of the week and he'd lost his voice. This would be every speaker's nightmare. And he'd almost got no voice left at all. And Scott, Scott, uh, sorry, Scott describes the last meeting this way. I was <clears throat> already, it was already late afternoon within a few hours of the final meeting. And I felt I couldn't back away at the time. It was too late, so I went to the great hall and asked a few students to gather around me, asked one of them to read from 2 Corinthians 12.9, my grace is sufficient for you, my power is made perfect in weakness. I asked them to lay hands on me and pray. Those verses might be true in my own experience. He goes on and says, when the time came for me to give my address, I had to get within an inch of the microphone and I croaked the gospel. And I couldn't exert my personality. I couldn't move. I couldn't use any inflection in my voice. I croaked the gospel in a monotone. And then when the time came to give the invitation, there was an immediate response, larger than any other time during the mission. Students kept coming forward. And then he says that the, the, the times he went back to Sydney, maybe 10 times or so in the future after that mission, each time he was there, he would meet somebody who would come up to him and say, do you remember that final meeting in the Great Hall when you lost your voice? I was converted. Paul says, the weakness of the messenger displays God's power. We have treasure in jars of clay, don't we? So that we might show the all-surpassing power of God and not us. And so we want to be cross-centered in our message that we proclaim. We want to keep Christ and him crucified at the center when we speak to others. We want to be humbled by the cross as we realize how unworthy we are, but also how secure we are as we share with others. And we don't want to preach ourselves, but we want to preach Christ and him 
crucified. Amen.